Welcome to the Ecclesiastical History Society podcast. The EHS exists to explore all aspects and all periods of the history of Christianity. And in our podcasts, we welcome guests to discuss a wide range of topics. If you want to know more about the EHS, then visit our website, ecclesiasticalhistorysociety.com, or our social media pages. joining us in this EHS podcast episode. I'm your host, Angela Platt. I'm completing my PhD at Royal Holloway University of London, looking at love in religious families in the 18th and 19th centuries. Today, I'm privileged to be joined by Dr. Francis Young, who is a UK-based historian and folklorist specializing in the history of religion and belief. He is the author, editor, or co-author of 18 books. He is interested in how history illuminates the nature of belief and in the intersections between religion, folklore, magic, and other forms of supernatural belief. His books have dealt with early modern Catholicism, the history of exorcism, medieval monasticism, folklore, the cult of saints, the history of magic and witchcraft, and Baltic paganism. He is also a professional indexer and a translator, specializing in medieval and early modern Latin. His recent monograph, Magic in Merlin's Realm, A History of Occult Politics in Britain, was published in March 2022, and this monograph is the subject of today's episode. So I'm delighted to be here today with Francis to talk about his new monograph. Thank you for joining us, Francis. It's lovely to be speaking to you today. So my first question for you, uh, in this monograph, you are looking at magic and occult traditions in Britain. I wonder if I can start with a question of definitions. Can you tell us a bit more what is meant by magic and occult traditions? What is what is consisted in these two categories? Well, the title is deliberately a little bit ambiguous. Um, I mean, the reason why I went for this phrase, um, yeah, sort of occult traditions, is because magic is just one among many different occult traditions that we find in the Middle Ages and, and thereafter. In its most basic meaning, occult means hidden. Uh, so we're talking about hidden systems of knowledge. Now, for medieval people, some of those were what we might consider to be magic. And some of them were things that they would have considered to be magic. But clearly, our views on that have changed over time, our perceptions of what is magic. For example, medieval people would have considered astrology or alchemy to be hidden sciences in the sense that they required a special degree of knowledge, but they didn't actually consider them to be magic, whereas we today might consider alchemy and astrology to be magic, whereas they would most certainly have considered something like spirit conjuring to be magic. So I think it's really in order to, it's partly to avoid those questions of definition that I went for that term, occult traditions. Uh, but really, it's kind of looking at things that I suppose we, from our perspective, might consider to be magical, but medieval people, early modern people, might have had slightly different views on that. So would you say that amongst kind of the medieval and early modern people that you're looking at was the line between Christianity and occult and, and magic a little bit more nebulous? Yes, indeed. I, I mean, it, it barely existed at all. Um, when you look at the, the attitude of the church towards these occult sciences, 
it's very variable indeed. Um, there, there are the occasional condemnation of, of astrology, for example, or even condemnations of alchemy, though th those are even rarer. But generally speaking, most Christians throughout the period that's under consideration in this book would have accepted that astrology, alchemy, had some sort of validity. On the other hand, there were forms of magic which were clearly prohibited by the church from a very early date. Um, so, for example, you know, the conjuring of, of, of spirits, because that was engaging with illegitimate spiritual forces outside of the framework of Christian worship. And then you've got these ambivalent uh, forms of magic or forms of occult activity that no one can ever quite agree on. Um, so natural magic, I suppose you could call those astral magic, the idea, for example, that you can make talismans which draw down astral forces and, and forces from the stars. So there's a bit of astrology in there, but it also seems to be capturing a kind of power. And, and I think it's that capturing of power that the church sometimes has a problem with. But yeah, all of the people who are engaging in these practices are Christians, and many of them would have quite explicitly identified their practice of magic as emerging from their Christian identity. So yes, I mean, these, these are not things which are in conflict in any straightforward way. That segues really nicely into my next question, actually, which was to ask a bit more about how magic is linked to beliefs and practices in wider society. And I think I want to home in slightly more and just ask whether the magic that you're looking at, was it particular to occult traditions then? Certainly, um, yes. I, I, I think that occult traditions is, is a broad term which covers magic, it covers astrology, it covers alchemy. And these are an aspect of life which is integrated with, with many other you know, dimensions of life in, in the medieval and the early modern period, with religion, with medicine, for example. Um, and so the, the boundaries between um, magic and, and religion are you know, notoriously porous. You know, no, no one's ever been able to define religion in such a way that it entirely excludes magic. And no one's ever been able to define magic in a way that entirely excludes religion. And similarly, the boundaries between what we might consider to be magic and medicine, you know, are, are, are very much porous, or indeed what we might consider to be proto-science. And so we've got this constant problem when we're dealing with, you know, past beliefs of the extent to which we apply our own perceptions, our own, uh, you know, uh, conceptual frameworks to these ideas, and the extent to which we accept and adopt the conceptual frameworks of the people at the time. And I think I want to go back to the first part of my question as well, thinking about its link with belief and practices in wider society. So I've noticed the subtitle of your book, A History of Occult Politics in Britain. Can you talk a little bit about the link with politics in this investigation? Yes. Uh, I mean, really what the book is trying to do is recover the significance of occult beliefs when it comes to politics. And when you look at the last 50 years or so in the historiography of, of medieval and early modern Britain, there's been a recovery of the importance of religion to political history. You know, um, no one now would adopt the rather kind of functionalist or, or uh, you know, a kind, a kind of Marxist interpretation that you found maybe in the 1960s, where people said that, you know, nobody really believed anything uh, really 
religious belief was just a tool that was used in order to control people or to achieve the political outcome you wanted. I think most historians now would accept that people did genuinely believe and you know, genuinely had religious beliefs. And so the historiography of the Reformation is now very much based on the idea that people did genuinely hold to these beliefs by and large. But I think that we have yet to experience a similar kind of historiographical revolution when it comes to other kinds of belief. And of course, people didn't just have religious beliefs. They also had what we might consider to be occult beliefs. And so what the book is trying to do is, is to recenter the occult within politics. And I think that's fairly easy to do, because when you look at uh, medieval politics in Britain, early modern Britain, uh, you see that there are a lot of people who do engage in magical practices or are accused of engaging in magical practices, perhaps because magic is the last refuge of the desperate and the powerless. If you find yourself excluded from a political process, one response to it is to try to find a way through the supernatural to gain con regain control and regain some sort of sense of, uh, you know, be, being in control and being able to change your circumstances. And so I think that connection is always there. And I think also, you know, we talk about politics as being the dark arts. You know, we use these kind of metaphors um, that are drawn from magic. You know, we talk about cabals, you know, the, these groups of you know, people conspiring together. And that's, of course, from, from the word Kabbalah, you know, referring to, you know, Jewish mystical and magical traditions. And so there, there's always been this kind of link between the dark arts of politics and the dark arts of magic. Uh, but I, I'm making the case here that this is more than metaphorical if you go back to, you know, before 1700. And so, yeah, people really did believe that they could use magic to manipulate political situations. With that in mind, I wonder if you could say a bit more about who practiced magic in this investigation you're looking at. I mean, do you did you find evidence or, or themes, patterns about who specifically was practicing magic, politicians, or you talked about those who were going through particular kind of avenues of suffering? Was there any pattern that you noticed? I think there are two main groups who are practicing magic, and, and one of those is elite. Um, so you've got elite court magic, I suppose, or courtly magic, where you've got people at the court who are engaged in this kind of dog-eat-dog -dog kind of competition for the king's favour, the queen's favour. Um, and it's a very mercurial world in which it's very difficult to look through the smoke and mirrors and see what's really happening and who's really in the ascendant and why certain people are receiving favour and why some are not. And so there are examples that we find of court magic or court accusations of magic where somebody, an attempt is made to try and smear somebody at the highest levels of power by associating them with, with evil magic. Uh, we know one very famous example of that would be in 1440, you've got the accusations that are made against Eleanor Cobham, Duchess of Gloucester, who is a key figure within the Lancastrian administration uh, during the minority of Henry VI. Um, and by discrediting her, her husband, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, the king's uncle, is discredited. And therefore, the rival family, the Beauforts, are able to you know, gain the ascendant in that situation. You know, similarly, you've got the accusations that Richard III makes against Elizabeth Woodville, uh, the wife of, of Edward IV. You've got the accusations that Henry VIII makes against Anne Boleyn of, of, of witchcraft. So that kind of you know, highest level form of, of magic or accusations of magic. 
But then the other group of people that you've got involved in this are the lowest of the low, really. You know, people who uh, have nothing else. Um, you know, they've got no other chance of trying to influence politics, and yet they want to gain some kind of influence. And so you've got, um, you know, uneducated people who will do things like, um, you know, engage in some kind of magical fast dedicated to a saint in order to waste the body of the king, or people who will make wax images and hide them and, you know, torment those wax images in an attempt to influence and control a political figure, whether it be you know, the monarch or, or someone else. Uh, so I think, yes, it, it's something which happens at the higher echelons of power and something that happens at the lowest levels of society. But it's also something that the clergy are quite specifically involved in. So because magic is something which requires literacy, generally speaking, uh, it's something which requires a degree of learning. Usually somewhere along the line, there is a cleric who gets involved. And what sort of things would clerics do if they got involved? I mean, would, was magic practiced publicly or was that something done more privately? Certainly, these are things that are done in secret. Uh, if you publicly practice magic, you could be in deep trouble. Um, although, again, attitudes towards this change over time. Certainly in the Middle Ages, magic is something which, unless it is perceived as directly threatening the state, is something which is a minor misdemeanor, a fairly minor misdemeanor that's dealt with by the church courts. But by the middle of the 16th century, we've moved to a situation where magic is regarded much more seriously and, and there are statutes against it. And it might well be something that results in your death. But um, yes, the clergy, their role is really to make use of the sacraments and sacramentals of the church in a magical way. So you might have a priest who celebrates mass as part of love magic, for example. Um, the hosts that are consecrated in that mass might then be used in magic, they might be you know, turned into part of a magical potion, which is given to somebody, or uh, you know, they, they could be used as some kind of magical talisman. You've got priests involved in uh, exorcism. So because they've got the power to command spirits through the liturgy of exorcism, if that's slightly modified, it means that a priest can command a spirit, not just to go, which is the purpose of exorcism, but the priest can command the spirit to stay and answer questions. And so you end up with conjuration, you know, the idea of interrogating a spirit, extracting information from the spirit world. Uh, and yeah, priestly power is, is within the medieval worldview, is something which is required in order to do that. You mentioned love magic. Can you tell me a bit more what that is? Well, love magic is the attempt to uh, use magic to try and get somebody to return your love or uh, some simulation of it. Um, so it can, in, in the medieval period, when you look at the grimoires, the, the magical manuals, it sometimes takes a pretty crude form. Uh, grimoires tend to be quite preoccupied with money, power and sex. Um, so it's, yeah, it, it, it's a, a way of manipulating people. And in that sense, it's very much allied to the kind of magic that's used in politics as well, because that's also trying to manipulate somebody and indeed trying to get the king to favor you is something you know very similar and akin to love magic. But love magic, yes, generally it, it, it's, it's something which is practiced by women. Um, it's associated particularly with cunning women, you know, women who claim some sort of, you know, uh, uh, supernatural wisdom, or it's something which is, you know, the clergy might be engaged in as well. And, you know, these, these sacraments of the church could be abused in love magic. 
That's really interesting. Um, you mentioned women a bit there. And, and I also noticed in some of the examples you gave earlier, there were lots of women and talking about those who are practicing magic. I mean, I guess I want to ask a gender question. Do you sense that women typically were largely the, the more often the practitioners of magic than men? What were their de- gender dimensions to practices of magic? This is a really important question. It's, it's quite a complex one. Um, I think, first of all, we need to make a distinction between magic and witchcraft. And that's partly a distinction of definition, although definitions that distinguish between magic and witchcraft in any clear way are very difficult. But it's also a a question of perception. Um, And certainly what happens in 1563 is we get a witchcraft act, which is, you know, the, the first consistently enforced witchcraft act. And very early on, a precedent is set in 1566 that the Witchcraft Act is going to be applied to women primarily, and it's going to be applied to women who are accused of witchcraft. And witchcraft in this sense is malefic witchcraft. That is to say, uh, supernatural ill-wishing in some form of collaboration with the devil, generally by the unlearned. And in that sense, witchcraft is worlds away from magic. As, as understood in the medieval period. So magic is a, a skilled activity. Magic is uh, the manipulation of you know, certain uh, remedies, the ma- manipulation of certain powers of the church and so forth in order to achieve your desired result. The devil might possibly be involved, but not necessarily. And therefore, I think we have to make that distinction first of all. And yes, it is certainly true that in England, historically, it's mostly women who are accused of witchcraft, albeit not exclusively. And quite quickly, witchcraft is imagined as something rather different from magic, as magic had been you know, imagined in the late Middle Ages. When it comes to magic itself, there were certain forms of magic, certain forms of skilled supernatural activity that women were particularly associated with. And I've already mentioned love magic. Um, so Marjorie Jourdemain would be a, a good example of such a woman. She's the, the woman who ends up being burnt as a result of the accusations against Eleanor Cobham, Duchess of Gloucester, because Marjorie Jourdemain had provided Eleanor with advice on love magic and advice on conceiving a child. And yes, that is a, an area where women have particular expertise. But there are other areas of magic that women almost never seem to be involved in. Um, and the, those are the kind of more learned aspects of magic. So spirit conjuration, there's no evidence of, well, very little evidence of women being directly involved in spirit conjuration, because spirit conjuration requires you to have books. It requires literacy and not only literacy, but literacy in Latin, because most of these spells are, are Latin. And it tends to be a very clerical activity. And therefore, by definition, it's one that's, that's closed to women. And so magic is quite a gendered activity and, and it's quite gendered in its domains of you know, which areas of magic are associated with women and which are not. So thinking about these different areas of magic, I guess my next question is almost a, a denominational question or a, or a categorical one, perhaps. Um, were some aspects of magic or some categories of magic rendered more acceptable while, while others were considered unacceptable? Yes, the influence of the Reformation on magic is is really fascinating um, and unexpected, actually. Um, I mean, ostensibly, the reformers are tough on magic. You know, they they portray themselves as being very, very tough on magic. 
they portray magic as being essentially a symptom of the corruption of Catholicism. Uh, and so the classic Protestant polemic against magic is to say, oh, well, you know, look what those Catholics are up to. You know, no wonder they need to be, you know, taught the truth of the gospel because they're corrupted by magic. Uh, you know, it, it is a sign of corruption. It's a sign of the devil's dominion over the Catholic Church and so forth. But when it actually comes down to, you know, the actual practice of magic, it seems that the ordinary Protestant clergyman, for example, is almost as likely to engage in magical practices as the, the ordinary Catholic clergyman. And I think what, what you tend to find is that the, the grimoires are kind of adopted hook, line and sinker within the, the Protestant tradition, except with a few amendments. So there's some wonderful examples of grimoires which have been slightly amended so that references to the Virgin Mary have been removed and also references to celibacy have been removed. But everything else in there is in there. You know, the conjuring of the devil is in there. But, you know, it's, it's, it's unacceptable for Protestants to pray to the Virgin Mary. And it's, and it's obviously not possible for most Protestant ministers to, you know, make these preparations that involve celibacy. So, um, yes, you get this kind of reform of magic, but the reform of magic is quite a light touch because magic has a certain conservatism about it. Um, in, in the early modern period. It's, it's one of the defining features of early modern magic. Very conservative, very rooted in medieval practice. Because the thing about magic and the logic of magic, the kind of internal logic of magic, is that things work because they've been established to work by tradition. And therefore, magic has this kind of tendency towards the traditional, which is ironic, because of course, magic is also this highly transgressive act. You know, it's this very kind of rebellious act. And therefore, you'd think that there wouldn't be great respect for tradition. And yet there is. So there's this kind of paradox within the practice of magic that it's both transgressive and also deeply traditional. And yes, it remains in many ways deeply Catholic, even with a, within a Protestant society. And how does that tension that you're talking about, where it can be subversive, how does that play out in the political realm as well? I think magic is seen in the political realm as unacceptable from very early on. I mean, when you look at the, the 1352 Statute of Treason under Edward III, that's um, still in force uh, in the UK. And it, 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 it explicitly, or well, perhaps explicitly would be going too far, but it, um, it implicitly refers to the possibility of, of magical attacks on the monarch. Um, so you've got this phrase, compassing and imagining the death of the monarch. And in the Norman French, compassé et imaginé, um, imaginé, it's got, it's got the sense of imagination that we might give it, but it's also got that sense of making an image, making an image of the monarch and, and, you know, the, and abusing the image of the monarch. Um, so it's got this magical sense from, from very early on. And I think that, that that sense that magic is totally unacceptable in the political realm is something which continues, even down to something as innocuous in early modern terms as casting a horoscope for the monarch. So, you know, casting horoscopes is an everyday occurrence in early modern England. Everybody's doing that. You know, it's something which you can, you can, you know, get done for a few pence um, with your local astrologer. And yet when it concerns the monarch, then obviously the political ramifications are so much greater. And so while magic in and of itself, occult traditions like astrology in and of themselves, you know, in, in society at large, up until the middle of the 16th century, then they're not really that much of a big deal, unless 
they are of political significance. And I think it's it's the same with anything, really, isn't it? Um, you know, when you look at the prevalence of violence in the late Middle Ages, the prevalence of violence was something which, to a large extent, was was accepted within within society, unless it it takes on an additional political significance. And I think the same can be true of um, you know of, of of magic as well. As soon as something is involved in politics, it becomes you know charged in a way that it wouldn't otherwise be. And I wonder if, for my next question, I can ask you a bit more about the continuity and change about views or practices of magic over time. I mean, you've mentioned a shift within the Reformation, and you mentioned earlier in the podcast as well, I think the same, you mentioned the 16th century. Can you talk a bit more? I mean, was there anything in conceptions, practices, and views of magic that remained the same, or is it quite heterogeneous over time? Yes, um, continuity and change is a good way to describe it, as it is many things. And I think that, um, yes, there's there's huge continuity. I mean, certainly in the spirit conjuring tradition, uh, what we might describe as ritual magic or perhaps necromancy, that is something which tends to remain quite consistent. Although by the late 17th century, the traditional spells, they begin to be translated into English. So by the time Elias Ashmole is collecting, uh, you know, the, these kind of conjurations, they, most of them have been translated into English, but they're still the old, you know, still the old Latin prayers, you know, go, going back to the, you know, to, to the medieval grimoires. One thing that really does change in a different tradition of magic is natural magic. So whereas medieval natural magic is very much based on things like collecting uh, magical stones um, and, and making amulets with their properties and those sort of things. Um, the, a Renaissance tradition comes into England via people like Giordano Bruno in the late 16th century of um, the, this kind of Renaissance astral magic. The idea that it's possible to draw down influences in specially manufactured amulets made of bronze with specific images imprinted on them Bruno, of course, takes that a stage further and says, well, actually, you can, through the art of memory, you can imprint those astral images on your own mind. And therefore, the magus, you know, the magical practitioner can himself become this kind of magical engine. And you get this kind of, um, you know, it's very uh, Renaissance conception of magic that's like nothing that has existed in medieval Britain. And then, of course, you, as you get into the 18th century, you start to get a convergence between what we might consider to be magic and what we might consider to be pseudoscience. So the terminology undergoes a shift. Uh, you, you get, for example, the influence of mesmerism in the late 18th century. And mesmer is somebody who is very clever in using scientific language at the time, the, you know, the language of the Enlightenment, in order to advocate something which is essentially, you know, a form of, you know, sympathetic magic, you know, animal magnetism and so forth. Um, and, and I think, yes, there are changes, there are, there are, you know, evolutions in the way that people think about magic, which, which yeah, it's, you know, if everything changes, but everything stays the same, you know, at the, at the same time, you know, the logic of magic remains the same, you know, things like, you know, the idea of sympathetic magic, the idea that if you create a microcosm of something, it will have influence on the macrocosm. If you create a, an image of somebody and do things to it, it will somehow have an effect on the real person. You know, those kind of 
old ways of magical thinking, they stay the same, but they're expressed under different language sometimes. And I wonder, do you sense, I don't know if your book, does it go into the 20th and 21st century at all? Because I was going to ask, do you sense, is there any residue of magic, whether implicit or explicit, that continues into the 20th or 21st century? Yes, it does. I mean, there's there's a revival, really. I mean, when you look at the late 19th century, uh, there, there's a kind of revival of magic in, a, in an explicit and avowed way. Um, up to the end of the 19th century, people tended to be quite embarrassed about magic. Educated people, it was something that, you know, you didn't talk about, um, you didn't avow an interest in, even at the fringes of society. But in the late 19th century, you have this kind of apogee of romanticism and, and, and contained within that is a, is a kind of revival of, of magic. And it does have some political ramifications. It tends to be, for, for whatever reason, reactionary figures seem to be drawn towards the occult and magic in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, reactionary yet radical figures. So, so people who, you know, have, have you know, they tend to support things like the Carlist Rebellion in Spain, which is an attempt to establish a much more conservative regime. They tend to support um, French monarchism, you know, against the, the, the French Republic and so forth. Um, you know, why that is, you know, there are lots of possible reasons that we could speculate on, but it, it, it's, it's something which does have certain resonances in the First World War, and even more so in the Second World War. Various people claim to be engaged in some kind of magical warfare during the Second World War. And these are claims that none of them have really been verified, you know, as, as definitely true, but they've become these cultural tropes um, that I think a lot of people believe in and, and, and believe that they happened. Um, so, for example, Gerald Gardner, who is the founder of modern neo-pagan Wicca, he claimed in the 50s that during the war, the New Forest Coven, a group of, of witches, had gathered together in the forest and danced and created a cone of power that they directed against Hitler in order to prevent invasion. You know, you had mm. similar claims that were made by uh, Alastair Crowley about things that he'd been involved in. Um, during the war of kind of these um, rituals involving uh, creating an image of Hitler and tormenting it. And um, yeah, these, these sort of ritualistic practices and other people who actually wrote these things down during the war of things that they were doing of kind of creating astral forces that they directed against Hitler and so forth. And I suppose that a lot of these things made people feel better. You know, um, if you're in a situation of dire crisis where your country is existentially threatened, then one of the effects of that will be turning towards anything you can lay your hands on, including the supernatural, in order to um, in order to, to to feel better about it. But I think there's also propaganda value um, in some of these things, which is why you know some credence can perhaps be given to the possibility that some of these things maybe did happen. So there's a rumor that perhaps if one of these rituals did happen, it was deliberately staged so that rumours would go back to the Nazi high command because the Nazis, or certain, certain high-ranking Nazis, such as Hess and Himmler, were notorious for their own belief in the occult. And therefore, if they believed that the British were engaged in some kind of occult operation against them, they would actually be scared. Um, so, that, yeah, there's, there's much debate about this, of course. That's really interesting. I mean, with that example you just gave, would you say to some extent that magic is performative? 
Yes, I mean there, there is a there is a sense in which magic is 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 psyops. You know, magic is um, you know if if people believe in it, if your enemy believes in magic, then magic works. <laughs> yeah, this is this is something which I think is a, a, a kind of cultural universal almost that we find throughout the world. Um, and you know, understanding that can be very can be very important. I think when it comes to conflict. Um, I mean, I, I've been asked to speak about this, you know, to 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 the British Army, in fact, um, because it's you know not to say that the British Army is making use of magic, but it's because uh, understanding that other people, other cultures, may have a worldview that is more open to the supernatural than yours is actually quite crucial in a you know in a in a conflict situation. And you know there there are plenty of examples from the twentieth century of uh, intelligence units that have made use of performative, you know, magic, if you like, or performances of magic, which they themselves maybe didn't believe in, in order to uh, in order to achieve, you know, c- control. And you know, there are examples from elsewhere in the world, notorious examples like the use of um, Vodun in, in Haiti by various regimes in order to intimidate its citizens, which, you know, show the power of these kind of beliefs and how they can be used against people. I think my next question is, I think it's a very academic question. Um, I want to ask you a little bit more about what other scholars have noted about magic, this link between magic and occult beliefs and politics that you've that you've been looking at, what have other scholars said and how is your research sort of unique in that discussion? Well, uh, going back to a, you know, a classic um, would be, you know, Keith Thomas's Religion and the Decline of Magic and the argument that's that's made there about the, you know, the decline of magic being down to, you know, greater focus on on religiosity and, and the Reformation. And I titled, you know, as a kind of deliberate, you know, pun really on, on Keith Thomas's book, I, I titled one of the chapters in Magic in Merlin's Realm, Politics and the Decline of Magic, in the sense that there is a, there is a link between changing views of, of politics and, and what the state is for and, and, and what the state is capable of and its scope and the uh, development of views about magic. And you know, Peter Elmer, has done some very interesting work on this quite recently, where Elmer makes the case that witch trials, for example, declined in the reign of Charles II. And the main reason for that is that Charles wants to create an impression of political stability after the storm of the interregnum. And one way in which political instability is very visible is through people in local communities being able to run around making accusations of witchcraft against people. And therefore, Charles is very hostile to the idea that people should be allowed to make these kind of accusations and get them to trial. And therefore, the fewer witchcraft trials there are, the greater impression of stability that creates in the state. Uh, and so Elmer's case is that, you know, that's that. Whereas Julian Goodair, for example, when it comes to Scotland, has made the opposite case for Scotland. And he said, well, actually, in Scotland, the view taken there by the, the Scottish Privy Council was that the, the, the greater impression of stability was created if there was a clampdown on witchcraft and people were quite clear that, you know, witchcraft was one of the things that the government was on top of. And therefore, the more witch trials you had, you know, the greater um, the political stability. And I don't think those arguments are at variance. I think that it just shows that the political culture in Scotland 
was very different when it came to witchcraft compared to the political culture in England. Um, so, I mean, those, those are some examples of, of, of recent engagement with this. But I think no one other than me really has kind of engaged with the question of magic as opposed to witchcraft, you know, so learned traditions of magic um, and the relationship of that with, with politics. So really that's what the book's trying to do. It's trying to build on the work of, you know, you know, those brilliant scholars, but at the same time, yeah, there isn't really anybody who's working on the relationship between magic and politics, as opposed to witchcraft and politics, which is a slightly different thing, although related. And can you tell us a bit more about the sources that you consulted for this research? How did you go about finding sources and what did you use? Yeah, there, there are some great sources for this. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of stuff in the National Archives. Um, so you've got uh, court proceedings uh, against uh, people who were who were accused of, of using magic against the monarch. Um, you've got uh, there's a lot of good stuff in the in the British Library as well. Uh, in the British Library, you've got the actual the kind of the, the materials on the other side, if you like, um, the surviving grimoires, for example. Um, and I think this is one of the things that I try to do in the book is is give both sides of the story. Because it's possible to tell a very punitive history of magic and politics, which is exclusively focused on accusations that were made against people and things that were done to them as a result of those accusations. But that's only the state's side of the story. It, it doesn't you know, give any account of what these people were actually thinking and what these people were doing. And I'm very interested in that. And one of the problems is that when people were accused of magic, their instruments and their books were usually destroyed as part of the judicial proceedings. And therefore, we have to find things like um, grimoires from the same period, which are analogous and might contain similar kinds of spells. But luckily, the grimoire tradition is pretty conservative. And therefore, there's a high likelihood that the stuff that we find, you know, in the, in the few surviving grimoires that there are, and there's not really that many, you know, there's only about you know, 33 grimoires that survive from early modern England, for example. Um, and yeah, the, the, you have to then search through and say, you know, could this be analogous to the spell that is referred to in these judicial proceedings and then kind of make these links? And the links are a bit speculative, but, you know, they're the best that we can do, really. And that's what really intrigues me. And it's what nobody's done before is to kind of connect these two sides. What were the magicians doing and what were the authorities doing on the one hand? So I just have two more questions for you. Uh, the first one is, again, a sort of academic question. I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about why this particular avenue of research, why you would consider it to be quite valuable, what its broader implications might be. I think it broadens our, our concept of, of what the influence of belief is on human behavior. Um, I think that one of the handicaps that we have living in the society that we do and the culture that we do in the contemporary West is that we tend to give a, a low valuation to the importance of belief. Um, you know, we live in a skeptical age where people struggle to believe. And yet that shouldn't blind us to the fact that belief was immensely important to the people in the past. And not only religious belief, but also, you know, those beliefs which go beyond religious belief or run in parallel to religious belief. So I think it's it's important because it's about giving its due to a, a crucial aspect of the past, which we are in danger if we're not careful of ignoring. 
you know, it's, it's very easy to fall into these kind of functional interpretations of history and say, oh, all this stuff, you know, it's just, um, it, it's just exotic color or it's just, you know, things that people didn't really believe that they were try just trying to manipulate people by doing this stuff. And yeah, there are certain cases where that's very clearly the case. You know, some of these people were, were con artists. Some of these people didn't believe in the magic themselves and they were trying to manipulate other people with their own lies you know, just as you might get today. But many of them did believe in the magic. And I think we have to give due credit to that and, and therefore try and understand what humans will behave like, how humans will behave if they genuinely believe in these supernatural realities as they are real to them. Um, so, yeah, that's why I think this is so important, because it gives us a more rounded picture of what it was to be human in the past. And my final question is, what's next for you? What other projects do you have in the pipeline? Well, I have another book, which is coming out with Cambridge University Press next year, which is called Twilight of the Godlings. Um, and it's a book about the origins of supernatural creatures in English folklore. It's really about, um, you know, the, the origins of the, the, the supernatural creatures that we might consider familiar. So fairies, elves giants, heroes of, 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 uh, of British myth. But what are the deep origins of these? And it's attempt to kind of inquire, you know, as far back as the Romans, you know, look to as far back as Roman Britain to look at how it is that maybe these beliefs have come about. And so I put forward some, some tentative theories there about, you know, where these strange beliefs may have originated. Brilliant. And when is that expected to come out? So that's expected in May 2023. Okay. We'll have to have another chat, maybe a blog post or something like that for EHS listeners. They can hear more about that fascinating subject as well. Uh, before I let you go, I wonder if you wouldn't mind reminding our listeners of the title of your monograph and where they might procure a copy from themselves for themselves. So the book is called Magic in Merlin's Realm, A History of Occult Politics in Britain, and it's published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, it's available online uh, from the Cambridge University Press uh, website or indeed from other online retailers. Uh, but I highly recommend that you get it from the Cambridge University Press bookshop or its website because they have free delivery from that website in the UK. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ecclesiastical History Society podcast. Stay tuned for our next podcast episode, which will be advertised on our social media pages. If you're not currently a member of EHS, we highly recommend you consider doing so. It's a great opportunity to network with other like-minded historians and keep abreast of latest research in the field. More information is on our website, ecclesiasticalhistorysociety.com. <laughs>